All right, church family. Well, this might feel a little bit like going backwards um, because as we've been reading through the Bible this year, we've gone well past King David. And in fact, we're quickly approaching the time where um, the children of Israel go into captivity, um, kind of in their historical moment. But as we move through the Bible, we reach this place in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles that's a lot like the book of Deuteronomy was for the first five books of the Bible. It's, it's a recap. It's a retelling of what's happened so far. It's a re-emphasizing of key important things. And it's encouraging the next generation looking ahead um, to remind them of core values and a hope that's yet unsatisfied. And so we're actually going backwards and looking at a story in 1 Chronicles 21 this morning that's from the life of King David. Now, he's, he's nearing the end of his life, the end of his reign. Things are pretty much at peace in Israel. And he's now decided that he wants to take a census of all the people in Israel. So let me give you a quick recap of this story, and then we'll work our way through it. Uh, the story opens in verse 1. It says, Satan comes along and actually entices David or tempts David to number the children of Israel. And so David calls Joab, who's kind of his right-hand man, the commander of his army, and all the other commanders of the army together, and he says, I want you to go count everyone. Now, to us, this might seem harmless, like not a big deal, but Joab, his faithful assistant, knew otherwise and warned him. He said, David, you don't need to do this. This isn't right. This isn't good. Please stop. Um, David did not relent, and so Joab went out, and the story goes on. They collect all these numbers, they come back to David nine months later, bring him the numbers. The scripture even says Joab was so upset about this that he held back some of the numbers. Um, he didn't count the tribes of Benjamin or Levi because he just knew in his heart this was wrong. And so when David gets the numbers, it tells us really clearly that God was upset and that David really quickly realized he had blown it big time. And so he begins to repent, acknowledge his mistake, and says, God, help. I got myself into trouble here. Help. What do you want me to do? And so the prophet comes to David and speaks on behalf of the Lord, and he says, you got three choices. You can have three years of famine as a punishment, three months of your enemies pursuing you and defeating you in battle, or three days of pestilence at my hand where your people are going to get struck with this illness, this pestilence. And so David's in distress, but he says, I'll take the punishment. Give me the three days. And so over those three days, 70,000 people get struck and David's heartbroken. And he sees this angel of the Lord, sword in hand, coming towards Jerusalem and stopping there. And the scripture tells us that God, God paused and he had, he had mercy and he relented from bringing more calamity on Jerusalem. And so in this pause, as David sees this angel of the Lord, he approaches this threshing floor that's right above, or right below, sorry, where he sees the angel of the Lord. And he's told directly, um, it, at that threshing floor right there, it's time to make a sacrifice. And so David talks to the guy that owns it, purchases the threshing floor, purchases the animal for the sacrifice, the wood, the wheat, and he offers these sacrifices to God. And then the scripture says the angel of the Lord sheathed his sword and left. 
And David is just struck in awe at the mercy of God um, and purposes in this place right here at this threshing floor, this is where we're going to build God's temple and this is where the altar of the Lord will be from this point forward. That's kind of the summary of the story. Now I want to talk to you friends about something that I think is really important in all of these stories that we're, we're approaching. And if you're like me, there's some really challenging stories now as we've gone through the book of Judges. We worked through these stories of all these different kings from, from Saul to David and onward. And there have been a lot that, that challenge how I view God and how I view what's taking place in these stories. And I, I want to talk to you guys about perspective this morning for just a minute. Our perspective is so important. Um, my good friend Troy, many of you guys know Troy, um, he kind of threw out a question earlier this week um, on our, our little uh, Facebook page where we do some questions and dialogue together. And he was kind of just reflecting on what are, what are some modern day idols that we have? And I think first and foremost, the place we should go is personal. You know, what are the ones I struggle with? What are the things in my life that shouldn't be there? Um, but I have to say, I, I believe there, there's a modern idol that can be quickly exposed here if we'll be honest. And maybe it's one you've dealt with like I have. And it's this. It's easy for me to read these stories and for my perspective to be questioning or judging God. God, who are you in this? Why are you doing this? 70,000 people die? Why? That, that punishment seems so harsh. Um, what did David even do wrong? Like I look at the story and go, he wanted to count the number of people in Israel. Okay, well, maybe that was a little prideful or something. I don't know. And my tendency is to feel like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And I believe what we're very susceptible to do if we're not careful is we put ourselves in the seat of judgment, questioning God. And, and what I want to look at together this morning is a different perspective. And I want to invite you along with me. Let's look at this story through the eyes of David, the person who committed this sin that might not feel like that big of a deal, and who saw the devastating consequences of this decision that he made and God's punishment for it. And instead of resting on our potential perspective of questioning God and wondering what he's doing, let's see if we can learn something from David's response to this situation and his perspective on what was going on. All right? So the first thing that we see in the story is that David was wrong. And what I want to help you to see this morning is David knew he was wrong. That's the first perspective shift. See, I might not understand why this is such a big deal, and scholars have debated it. You know, they've said everything from, well, in Exodus, when the people took a census, they were told to actually pay a temple tax. Like, God gets some money if you're going to take the time to do this census, and you're, you're redeeming all the people in the land by paying this tax. And so maybe David's sin was he didn't charge the tax. Maybe that was it. Maybe his sin was just um, pride. You know, he wanted to sit back in his old age and be prideful about this great kingdom he had built. Maybe it was fear, fear of control. And he was trusting in man and the strength of men instead of trusting in God. 
I can sit and try to wrestle all day long and figure out what I think David did wrong. It really doesn't matter what I think. David knew he was wrong. And I'll show you a couple of ways that we can see this, okay? Number one, David's closest advisor, one of his friends, warned him and argued with him. Look at this, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 3. David says, I want to take this census. And Joab says, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. So he says, first of all, this is about the Lord's strength, not about how many people we have. If you're worried about how many people we have, God can provide more. What are you worried about? Are they not my Lord, the King, all of them, my Lord's servants? He says, hey, doesn't matter how many there are. God can provide more. And the ones you do have, they're with you. The people love you. They're committed to you. They're following you. What are you worried about? Why then should my Lord require this? It's, it's foolish. It's unnecessary. Don't do this. Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Joab understood that it was unnecessary. He even says it's dangerous. And this guilt that you're bringing upon yourself, it's going to affect everybody. Joab recognized that if David committed this act, that it was not only bad for David, it was bad for the people in his kingdom under his influence. And so his friend warned him, listen, we need friends like that. We need to be willing to be that for each other, to, speak, to, to stand up and speak truth and love. We also need to learn from David's mistake and have the humility that allows people close to us to point things out that maybe we've put blinders on and we're missing them. But one way we can know for sure when we're blowing it, when we're making a mistake, is when the people closest to us see it for what it is and call it out. So that's one way David knew. The second way he knew is that God was displeased. As this act unfolded, it says very clearly in verse 7, this is right before David comes to his moment of, his aha moment of realization himself. And it says that God was displeased with this thing and he struck Israel. Listen, this is not just a small little line to show us God's not happy. This should stand out to us because in this story, the rest of this story, and also throughout David's life, he constantly sought the Lord for guidance before he would do something. He would seek the Lord's guidance when he was struggling before he was even king. He would seek the Lord's guidance as king with core leadership decisions, um, with military battles. He regularly sought the Lord. When things were going wrong, he asked God for help and direction. Pretty quickly in the story, we're going to see when he realizes what he's done, he seeks the Lord multiple times in this story. But here he decides to take a census of the entire population of Israel, and he doesn't stop first and ask God what he thinks. And even after being warned by a close friend, he still stubbornly puts his foot down and resists. Listen, God loves us and he'll speak truth to us if we'll have ears to hear it. And I, I realize some of us maybe struggle with how do I hear God's voice? How do I recognize him in my life? Well, he speaks through people close to us that care about us. He speaks to us through his word. Things that we know from his word are off or wrong. 
but he speaks to us in our hearts in that still small voice, that, that thing inside of us that says, mm, don't do that. Hold on, slow down, stop. Listen, let's give him the credit he's due. God loves us and he's with us and he's in us and his spirit will talk to us and give us pause, give us warning. And David didn't do that. Finally, ultimately, David's eyes are open to the truth of what's going on. And in verse 8, David finally acknowledges, I know this is wrong. And so David said to God, he has a personal conversation with God about this. He brings him his sin. And he says to God in verse 8, I've sinned greatly in what and that I have done this thing. So David says, this thing right here that you and I may not understand, he views it as a great sin. He understood what he had done wrong and why, and he did not minimize it. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So David acknowledges it's a great sin, and he acknowledges that he was being dumb. He was being an idiot. He was acting foolishly. Listen, that is something that sin causes in our lives. Sin causes that. Um, I'll never forget this. My, my pastor, Steve Berger, has said for years, sin makes you stupid. And he's right. In our sin, in our pride, in our arrogance, we get blinded to the truth. And, and it's like putting on this set of lenses that gives us a false perspective. And so we can even fight against God's voice in our life, the voice of others who would love us and warn us, and, and we can miss something, and it leads to, to a foolish, stupid act that can have massive repercussions. And so whatever we think of in this story, we need to realize David's perspective was off because of his sin. And as soon as he was able to see clearly, he didn't get mad at God. He didn't say, Lord, you're overreacting. My sin wasn't that big of a deal. He said, oh God. I've blown it. I'm sorry. I've messed up. What do I now need to do to see this iniquity, this sin removed? What do I do? And so if point number one is that David knew he was wrong, that's one of his perspectives. The second perspective we need to take is that David was willing to face the consequences. God, what do I need to do? And so in verse eight, he owns up to the problem and asks God for help. God's response, verses 10 through 12, you can read them for yourself, but verses 10 through 12, God says, choose your own punishment. I'm going to give you three options. I, I mentioned these at the top. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of your enemy attacking you and defeating you, or you can have three days of pestilence that's going to be at my hand. I'm going to bring it. What do you choose? And I want you to see David's response See, it's one thing for David to go, oops, I made a mistake, I messed up, I'm sorry. But it's another thing altogether to recognize what the consequences are. How does he respond now? Does David say, that's not fair, that's too harsh, this isn't right? No. His response is this, verse 13, I am in great distress. So he was real, man. This, these consequences are terrible. I'm in great distress. But look what he says. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. 
If the first turning point in this story was David's willingness to own his sin, the second turning point is his willingness to accept the consequences, but to put his life in God's hands and at God's mercy. He says, do not let me fall into the hand of men. I'd rather not deal with an enemy, a man-made enemy that's going to attack me for three months. God, however scary it might be to see pestilence hit our land at your hand, I'm going to place myself in your hands. And so he's willing to accept the punishment, but he relies upon the mercy of God. And as we're going to see, that creates some powerful results in his life. Because punishment would lead to mercy, which would lead to revelation. All right, check this out. Verse 14, God says, okay, the punishment comes and 70,000 men fall as a result of this. So verse 14. Verse 15, before anything else happens, God's angel, this angel of the Lord is coming with sword in hand towards Jerusalem. It's about to get way worse than 70,000. He's coming to the most populous place. And as the angel of the Lord is approaching, it says that God sees and he relents. And he tells the angel, stop right there. It's enough. And so just as David, yes, received and experienced some punishment, he had put his life in God's hands and trusted in his mercy. And God paused. He stopped. And it's in this very moment that David actually has eyes to see this angel. David has a larger revelation now of the consequences. It's one thing just to know some bad stuff may come my way. But he's now watched 70,000 people fall as a result of his sin. And he has this vision of this angel with this sword. And it's this huge moment of revelation. And in this moment, David falls on his face and he seeks God once again. Verse 17 now. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. David's eyes were open to something huge that our eyes have got to be open to when we blow it. And it's the fact that our sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. Our sin hurts others, especially those under our direct influence. Man, when I'm blowing it, when I'm sinning, my kids deal with the results of that, the consequences of that. Now, sometimes they deal directly with it because, for example, if I'm sinning in anger and I'm taking it out on them, it's obvious. But there's other ways that my sin affects them. When, when I am walking in what is wrong, it permeates. It has an impact on me and it has a ripple effect that goes outward. And these ripple effects have consequences in the real world that touch lives. And that is a massive decision point right there. When we begin to see the ripple effects of our sin, we begin to see the consequences of our bad decisions. We have another perspective, moment of perspective. Do I blame God for the fallout or 
will, will I, like David, will I face up to the fact that this is a result of my sin? And will I humble myself and take responsibility? See, the minute David begins to do this, he sees more fully the weight of his sin and its effect on others. He's saying, I'll take the hit. And what's, what's interesting about this is he's starting to sound like Jesus. We got to remember this is an Old Testament story, but it has pictures of New Testament grace. And what David begins to move into now, because he's really fully grappling with the consequences of the decision he's made, and instead of being frustrated at God or blaming God, he's coming to grips with the reality that his sin has ripple effects that echo out, and they have a massive impact. And he says, God, I'm sorry, can you put this on me? Friends, you and I, we're unable to carry that burden. David was too. Maybe in his heart he wanted to bear the brunt of that sin. I've dealt with that before. There have been times in my life where I knew I needed help from God. And I actually felt the desire, God, I want to take this sin on myself. I deserve it. I deserve the punishment. I deserve the problems. I don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve grace. This is on me. But it is actually something that only Jesus Christ can do. It's only His grace that's enough. It's only His sacrifice that is sufficient. When we have that moment of realization and we recognize the consequences, will we turn and seek the Lord and say, God, what will you have me do? And the Lord says to David, I'm not going to have you take any more punishment. Instead, I want you to make a sacrifice right here, right now. Remember, friends, every sacrifice we see in the Old Testament was a glimpse and a picture of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And so God says, make a sacrifice. The next several verses, verses 18 through 26, they, they lay out this story of the angel of the Lord saying, right here in this spot, on this guy, um, Ornan's threshing floor, on his spot, I want you to make a sacrifice. So David approaches this man and says, all right, give me this spot um, to, to purchase. I want to purchase it. Don't just give it to me. I want to purchase it. I want to purchase this land, this space right here, this threshing floor, um, the materials I need to build an altar, the wood for the sacrifice, the bulls, the wheat, all of them have purchased that from you. And so verse 22 kind of shows us this. David said to Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. The sacrifice had to be paid for. The, the guy goes on to offer it to David for free and David won't allow it. In verse 24, David says, No, I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Listen, a sacrifice for sin and the mercy and grace of God are linked throughout the scripture. In this story, David provides the costly sacrifice for sin, but ultimately, Jesus himself provides the, capital T-H-E, the costly sacrifice for all sin at the cross. It's the work of our Savior Jesus, and what comes rushing in is the mercy of God. And so in this moment, David steps back. He builds this altar. 
verses 26 through 28 now. David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. A costly sacrifice that was accepted and the mercy of God takes place. The punishment relents. Verse 28, At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. I want you to see this. This is an important action step for you and I. When David saw the mercy of God at the acceptance of this costly sacrifice, David's response was to sacrifice more at that spot. There is a key biblical principle here for you and I to grab from this. Without a doubt, please don't mishear me, don't misunderstand me. Without a doubt, the required sacrifice has been provided in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate sacrifice that brings mercy and the grace of God upon our lives. But in that place of mercy, where God's mercy is at work for us, in that place of mercy, there is another sacrifice required of you and I. We have something to offer. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. It's only by the mercy of God that we can even do this. What does he appeal to us to do? To present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What's the sacrifice that we bring? We bring ourselves to Him. We present ourselves to God to be shaped and molded by Him. We give Him our thought life. God, here's my mind. Here's the way I think. Here's my perspectives. Here's how I view the world and live my life. God, would you change and renew my thinking? And then we go beyond that. As our thinking gets transformed, our lives get transformed. We begin to live out of the new perspectives that he gives. And what's interesting about the life of David here is from this moment forward, his entire focus shifts. See, I may not fully know what all he was dealing with as a result of this census. I don't know if he was trying to protect himself. He was trying to make sure the kingdom was established and strong for his son Solomon. I don't know if he was just trying to sit back and soak in his legacy and just celebrate in some pride. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. I, I don't know what all was going on in his heart before this census, but I know what was in his heart afterwards because he tells us in the very first verse of chapter 22, at the end of this whole story, David says, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. See what emerges from this moment of failure in David's life? The very spot where God's temple would be built. The temple in Jerusalem was built where it was built, and the altar was placed where it was placed out of David's sin. 
God took his mistake, his error, and then his proper perspective on that error, owning it, confessing it, facing the consequences, and then calling out for the mercy of God, relying upon the mercy of God. And God says, from this story, my mercy and my grace is going to be on display and my house will be built right here at this place of mercy. And from this point forward in David's life, read through the rest of First Chronicles. In all the ensuing chapters, everything David is doing is now shifting from whatever selfish focus he had before. It's now shifting towards preparation for the building of God's temple. He's getting Solomon and the people of God ready to build a house for God and to build a kingdom that's based upon following wholeheartedly after the Lord. That's David's heart. That's his motive. That's his perspective. He's pursuing God. The legacy he's going to leave, it's a legacy of a man whose heart was after God, who didn't put himself in the seat of judgment, but who was willing to be led by God, who was willing to recognize and rely upon the mercy of God, and who was willing to make great sacrifices to the one who makes the ultimate sacrifice. That's who David was. That's the perspective we, he had. And I want to invite us to have the same. As I wrap this up, I, I want to just kind of step back for a second and consider David's legacy. David ran an awesome race. He endured a, a long race. Um, he lived a good full life, the scripture tells us. But David ran an imperfect race. And there were some major errors along the way. But even in those errors, what we see is God's faithfulness and what we see is the result of a life devoted, wholly devoted to following the Lord. Saw this really, um, I thought it was a cool story this week. It, it was kind of comical in some ways, but it was a really powerful story to me. And there was this lady named Lindsay Devers. And um, since the Boston Marathon got uh, pushed back until um, later in the year. She'd been training for it and preparing for it, and she just decided, I'm going to go ahead and run this marathon. And so she had this really cool idea. The app that she was going to use, her fitness app, she had mapped out how she was going to run the marathon, and her route, as it was being recorded by her fitness app, she wanted it to spell out Boston Strong. You know, just kind of this cool visual of like, let's hang in there, Boston. And so she runs her 26.2 miles and she gets to the end and she checks her fitness app and she'd made a big calculating error. She'd made a big mistake. Um, check this out. I think we're going to put this image on the screen for you. Instead of spelling out Boston Strong, it spells out Boston Strog. <laughs> now you can look at that and laugh and she was even willing to publicly post it. And I think a lot of people have had a laugh at her expense as a result of that. But see, I look at that and I think it's beautiful. I think it's awesome. It's an imperfect run, but she ran her race. She accomplished her goal and she was even, even willing to put out there her mistake and her failure. And I pray that we could learn from her example and this example from the life of David. Friends, failures are inevitable. 
There's going to be blips on the radar. There's going to be foolish mistakes and sins along the way. Am I going to allow those sins to cause me to dig my heels in in pride? Am I going to allow the ripple effects of those consequences to cause me to question God and get frustrated with Him? Or am I going to be willing to bring my real self, mistakes, errors, and all, in honesty before the Lord and say, God, I'm willing to get real about this. I'm a real person who makes mistakes and I recognize the consequences that they've had. And God, I'm crying out to you for your mercy. And Lord, I'm trusting in your ultimate sacrifice. And so here's now my life, a living sacrifice to you. God, do with me what you will. Take this imperfect person, even my mistakes, even my struggles, and God, would you shape me and would you mold me? Would you continue to build me into the house where you reside? And may my life reflect your, your glory. Friends, I pray that we could be strong enough to live like that. Love you guys. Praying for you guys. Let's pursue the Lord and follow him and watch what happens over the course of our lives as that becomes our legacy. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your great love and mercy towards us. Lord, we pray that in, in our moments of failure, our foolish mistakes, our sins, God, that we could have the right perspective. God, give us a heart and a perspective like David's to recognize it when we're blowing it. God, may we have humility on the front end. God, for people to be able to speak truth in our lives, to, to pause us when we're headed down the wrong path. Lord, to recognize your own voice speaking to our hearts. But Lord, if, when we've gone too far and we've blown it, and we've kind of pushed right past those warnings, God, may we be quick to repent. May we be honest about the ripple effects of the mistakes we've made. And Lord, may we cry out to you, have mercy. God, thank you that your mercy is real and available to us. And that God, by your grace and by your sacrifice, we can be your people, imperfect as we are, but people that you love and that you're committed to. And that by your mercy, you are shaping and molding. God, that we can run a race that glorifies you. God, we love you. We commit our hearts to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, we'll have a great week ahead. I pray you'll jump into a life group. If you're not in one, they are open. We'd love to have you. We're meeting through video right now, and it's, it's a great way to, to stay connected while we're disconnected. Uh, would you be praying with us? We're watching closely um, as things unfold in the state and in our nation, you know, people are beginning to look ahead and potentially take some steps forward to loosen some restrictions. And so we're being watchful and prayerful. Uh, we want to make a wise and careful decision, but we love and miss you guys. And so hang in there with us as we figure out next steps. But in the meantime, let's reach out, let's love each other well, and let's, let's walk with the Lord Jesus. We'll see you sometime soon, friends. Have a great week. Bye.